Good evening. Please have your Bible ready at Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. I'll give the background. Read from this text in Genesis chapter 14. I'll say something about the narrative and then I'll take us to other relevant passages. This will be an inductive kind of study where the main point of the sermon comes up later as we pursue our study in Scripture with a destination in mind. Background. Abraham and Lot were together for a long while. They settled in an area called the Negev, sometimes spelled with a V, Negev, in some of the translations. A desert area south of Judah. Time came for Abraham and Lot to separate. The land could not sustain their livestock and their workers. You may remember that Lot chose the well-watered area of the Jordan Valley, and he eventually moved his family into Sodom, and that ended up with regret. War erupted, and Lot was taken captive. Abraham took an army of over 300 men to go rescue his nephew. Abraham returned and was greeted by a delegation of kings. And that brings us to this narrative in Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Chedor Loamir and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. It is hard for me to imagine a life like Abraham lived. Harder still for me to imagine a day in the life of Abraham. But this was something that didn't happen every day. In fact, we will discover that insofar as the text indicates, this is the only time Abraham encountered this mysterious man. Melchizedek. As you complete this reading in Genesis, you are left in your mind with some unanswered questions. Where did this man come from? What family? What place? What was his function? What was the purpose of his encounter with the patriarch? What would this possibly ever mean for me? For us today. And so you have those questions and you kind of put them in reserve somewhere in your mind. And you continue through Genesis thinking that maybe the answers will emerge in Genesis, but they don't. You read beyond Genesis. 
Nothing is said that affords any insight until you get to the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 110. And you come to verse 4. Not a lengthy text. It doesn't contain an essay with all the answers to your questions, but it's another part of the puzzle. Psalms 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, this adds another piece to the puzzle, and it's even fuller when you look at the context of the Psalms and of Psalm 110 in particular. Psalm 110 is what we sometimes call a messianic psalm. That is to say, it speaks prophetically of the Messiah. Messianic psalms speak prophetically of the Messiah. So, we begin to see here that whoever this man was, with the strange name, who met Abraham on a singular occasion, it seems to have something to do with Christ. Since Christ is the fulfillment of this messianic psalm in 110. And... So we still have questions in reserve, and we keep those. Nothing else about Melchizedek in the rest of the Old Testament. And so if you have this on your mind, you hasten into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Maybe they will give the answer. Nothing. Then eventually, if we are reading through the New Testament, maybe we've almost forgotten about Melchizedek. But he comes up again in Hebrews chapter 5. Our curiosity then is piqued again in Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 7 through 14 in Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Well, you seem to be getting closer when you're in Hebrews chapter 5. Jesus is our great high priest, and it says here, designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you think, I'm going to get more here. All my questions are going to be answered here. 
Then the Hebrew writer goes off in another direction completely. The Hebrew writer stops at this point about Melchizedek and that narrative. And the Hebrew writer expresses his concern that he cannot go into this in much detail at this point because his readers are dull of hearing. So we're left hanging. The writer talks about the fact that his readers are unskilled and he admonished them about that. And at the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, where's Melchizedek? Are we ever going to know the rest of the story about this man Melchizedek? Well, patience always pays off in Bible reading. So here we come into chapter 7 in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. I need to do a lengthy reading here, but it's going to put more parts of the puzzle in place for us. So listen carefully. I'm in Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he is still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, 
who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, I've read to you the sum total of what Scripture says about this man, Melchizedek. What does this mean? How do we put all this together? I need to give you some more background. I want you to think about the historical background of the book of Hebrews. I think we need that at this point in our discovery. This epistle was written to Christians of Hebrew background. That is to say, they came out of Judaism, obeyed the gospel, and now Christians under pressure, being persecuted and tempted to leave Christ and go back into Judaism. So the writer seeks to fortify their faith, refresh their commitment, and explain further the fullness of what Christ offers through the new covenant. That's the setting. That's the thematic content of the book of Hebrews. A fundamental belief of the Jews was that their access to God was through the priesthood of the Old Covenant. Men selected from the sons of Aaron through Levi, sometimes called the Levitical priesthood. When Jesus came, in His death and entrance back into heaven, He became the only priest anyone needs. That is, the only access to God. I want you to look with me now back in Hebrews 4 at verses 14 through 16, where this very thing is affirmed. Since then we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a critical part of the message of God to the Hebrew Christians. If I may be so bold, the message is, you don't need the old Levitical priesthood. All you need is Christ. He is our great high priest. At this point, Jews might inquire, wait a minute, they might say, 
since Jesus of the tribe of Judah is not part of the Levitical priesthood, what priesthood or order is he a part of? Do you see now what God did? God, in his perfect foreknowledge, set up a priesthood before the law of Moses, before the Levitical system, that the priesthood of Melchizedek is higher than the Levitical system is implied in that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. See, giving the tithe was a gesture that honored the recipient. And it thus implied that the recipient was of higher status or position in some sense. This surely signals that Abraham believed he was in the presence of a great person who deserved to be honored with treasures. God set up something prior to the Levitical system that held higher status. To enable this argument to be made by the Hebrew writer that Christ is high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not of the Levitical system, since he's of the tribe of Judah, not Levi. Now, let's look at something else. At this point, the Jews might have another question, if you can imagine the dialogue between the Hebrew writer and Jews who are, who are faltering. The Jew would say, wait a minute, who is this man Melchizedek? Where are his credentials? We want documentation. We want to trace the genealogy. And the Hebrew writer says, there is no record of mother, father, or documented genealogy. There's no date of birth and no date of death. All you need to know is Melchizedek is related to God. He was put in place by God. He is priest of God Most High. Genesis 14, Psalms 110, verse 4. Jesus is high priest like Melchizedek, not like the tribe of Levi. In fact, Jesus is high priest superior to that priesthood. God set up something prior to the Levitical system that held higher status. To enable this argument to be made by the Hebrew writer that Christ is high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Note the following, and then we'll get to our practical points in a moment. Melchizedek's position as high priest was not dependent on ancestry. Neither was Christ. Melchizedek was not a successor of many priests. Neither is Christ. Melchizedek's priesthood was higher than and separate from the Levitical order, and so is Christ. Melchizedek was priest and king, so is Christ. God set up something prior to the Levitical system that held higher status to enable this argument to be made many, many years later, that Christ is high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, 
We find all of that fascinating and intriguing. And we see that it was of great value for the Jewish mind. But what should all this mean to me and to you today? I have three points. We serve a God who thought ahead perfectly. Thus making it clear to man, his interest is in our clear understanding. I should never think of God as throwing a plan together from time to time through some sort of trial and error process. There was nothing that took God by surprise. There was no argument that someone would come up with after Jesus was raised from the dead that God hadn't thought about and answered. God thought of everything in the unfolding of His scheme of redemption. He was ready for anything anybody would come up with. And in His revelation to the world and to His people, He made it clear. He thought of everything. We serve a perfect God. You don't have an argument that God doesn't have an answer for. Nor should you ever worry that you will encounter someone that has an argument that God doesn't have an answer for. Psalm 18.30, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. We serve a God who thought ahead perfectly. In all of this that unfolds from Genesis all the way over into Hebrews 7 through Psalms 110, isn't it clear there has been a change in the law? Look at verse 12 in Hebrews 7. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. See, the priesthood was part of something else. The Jews may have separated that out and thought of the priesthood as being eternal. The priesthood was a part of something else. It was a part of the old covenant, the old law, that system God gave for the Jews before Christ. So if you see that God has changed the priesthood, what is necessarily implied and here directly stated, there is a change of the law. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. All of this was set up, executed, and revealed by God for the purpose of convincing the Jews. Their old Levitical priesthood was now history. And the broader point outside of that is, that old law that the priesthood was part of is now abrogated. For the Levitical priesthood and the old law were bound together. One was a subordinate part of the other. Thus it follows, if the priesthood is changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. People today need to read this and understand it. When we respond to the gospel of Christ, we commit ourselves to the new covenant. 
That should be clear. God thought of this way, way ahead of time. Third point. We have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. I want to read from Hebrews 7 again, this time from 23 to 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We have a high priest. We have access to God. And our high priest is described here, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. You can't get any higher, and there's no other way to have access to God. As a Christian, my access to God is not only assured, my high priest is perfect, far beyond the men who came from the tribe of Levi. It might be said, Jesus is overqualified. He is sinless. The priests under the old covenant were not sinless. They offered sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus had no sin. Though he is overqualified by oath of God, he was appointed as our high priest, holy, blameless, pure, separated from sinners. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. He is more than adequate. And these truths, this whole line of argument, should firm up our confidence in our Savior. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but in my earlier readings, in all the readings we did tonight, in my earlier readings, I came to two words. And those two words in one of the earlier readings tonight capture what everybody's response should be to the truth Scripture presents, we've studied tonight. Two words. What do people today need to do? What do I need to do? What do my friends and neighbors need to do? I want you to look back at something I read earlier in Hebrews 5 at verse 9. Listen for the two words now. And being made perfect, 
He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. It all comes down to two words. Obey Him. Let's be standing as we sing. Fairless souls, what will you lay?